0: Father, we thank you for weddings, uh, uh, for the love that Leslie and Anthony will celebrate tomorrow, and and many, uh, Lord, that you have brought together over this Labor Day weekend uh, in families to enjoy a bit of rest. Thank you for rest. But thank you for the work that preceded it, that our bodies can do it. And, And Lord, thank you for the glimpse of eternal rest Uh, that a weekend like this uh, provides. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us eternal rest, peace with God, rest from our labor, rest from our guilt, rest from the harassment of the world and from our spiritual adversary, our spiritual opponent, the devil. Thank you for all those who come alongside us, In your church, among your redeemed, help lessen the load and help increase our joy. Father, thank you that today we've gathered to once again look at the grandest of all events, the return of Jesus Christ, how we pray today, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. I do pray, Lord, that my sermon would be 15 minutes, that it would be interrupted with the trumpet sound of the angel and the eastern sky splitting and the Lord descending and gathering us all home. We do pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, even in 15 minutes. I pray you would interrupt weddings and Labor Day plans and boating times For the grandest sight of all, the face of Christ coming to take us home. All we ask is for a few more minutes for those whose hearts are not ready now that they would say yes to Christ. Yes, with all they are to all that He is. We pray this in His name. Amen. Martin Luther, the great church reformer of the 16th century, said, There are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And by this day, he meant the day that was before him, the day that he had opportunity to work hard for his Lord and his writings and in his speaking. And then by that day, he was referring to the great day, of the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of the Lord for His church. How exciting it was last week and the opportunity returned this week to look again at the final three chapters of the book of Zechariah, chapters twelve through fourteen, to, to look at the old testament view of the New Testament hope, the return of Christ, the second coming of the Lord. To look at it from an Old Testament perspective, we see that uh, global forces, were a coalition of them, were gathered against God's people in Jerusalem. It looked like the annihilation of Israel was close at hand. And then in the last minute, at the last second, Christ returns. This is an event yet to be unfolded, and He saves the nation of Israel from annihilation. And this is what we saw today. Uh, last week will take place uh, in the future. Zechariah 14, 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's a 2,700-foot high peak, the highest elevation point in Jerusalem. East of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split and two, from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths." I know that last verse is not an easy verse to hear, but I just thought I would give you a conversation piece over lunch. And we really don't know uh, exactly what this verse is talking about. Is it a direct action of God against the coalition forces? Or is it talking about the type of weaponry that will be used, 21st century weaponry that will annihilate uh, military opponents in uh, the last times, but it is obviously uh, quite decisive in its in its ability to bring about an end of an army. But the verse that we really love is what we looked at last week: the standing of Jesus Christ on the twenty seven hundred foot peak of the Mount of Olives in in Jerusalem. And you know, one of the things that we love about the final three chapters of Zechariah in its description of the return of Christ is that. The, um, the name Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is mentioned 22 times. That's a lot for three chapters in the Bible. Uh, no doubt God loves Jerusalem, to mention it 22 times in three chapters. Uh, Jerusalem is obviously, it is the capital of His chosen people throughout the Old Testament. And Jerusalem is the city that God chose when He sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world and to die on a cross to absorb the guilt of everybody in this gymnasium into the sinless body of the Son of God. That event happened in Jerusalem. Obviously, the city is precious to God. So He loves Jerusalem As a matter of fact, Jerusalem is so precious to God that when He chose a name for the one city that He was going to call the new city that was going to be the capital of the new earth in the last book of the Bible, He said, well, I'm just going to go ahead and call it, He could have called it anything, but He said, I'm going to go ahead and call it again, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is how it sounds in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. It's where we get to live one day, a new earth. And I saw the holy city, and there he goes, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, crying, or pain. I want to pause here a minute. You know, we really aren't set up on Sunday morning for question and answer. And I probably it's probably a little uh, a a little error. It probably could make an adjustment because most of the questions I answer through the week I just respond individually. But the question last week that I was asked most often: um, In eternity, are we going to live in heaven or on earth? And the answer is yes and and really because one person asked it probably all of you and here's the deal if you die now or someone that you have loved has already died they are in heaven that's where god lives and that's where he is building the new heaven and new earth and every time you read about new heaven new earth it comes down where out of what it comes down out of heaven so if you say, where's God now? Heaven. So where is everybody that's with God? In heaven, but it's coming down out of heaven, but it is a new earth. It's coming down to a, so the new earth is in heaven, but it's, we will live on a new earth. So die now, go to heaven, but we are all going to live on a new earth. And it's for some of you who asked this kind of question, thought it might just be interesting to you. But the bottom line is God loves Jerusalem. He just loves the name. Obviously, he loves its history. Do you know who else loves Jerusalem? Odd, of all odds, as I would say this, John McCain. Um, I, I really didn't know this ab- about him, but I watched his funeral yesterday. You know, John McCain, senator from Arizona, died this past week. And uh, such a larger-than-life figure, I said, well, I want to see what people have to say about him. What can I? Learn about him, and you, you know a lot of his story. Decorated war hero. His uh, fighter jet was shot down in 1967 over North Vietnam. Uh, spent five and a half years uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, tortured uh, unmercifully uh, as, as a prisoner of war. And then in 1986 became a senator uh, for the great state of Arizona, one of his senator colleagues that he became great friends with was a Jewish man um, senator uh, Joe Lieberman, and they spent many years traveling around America, traveling around the world. But Joe Lieberman spoke yesterday at the National Cathedral honoring McCain at the funeral. So I wanted to hear what what a buddy would say about him, and he said, "Well, we often traveled to Jerusalem." And he said the favorite thing that John enjoyed doing in his favorite place to travel was when we would be done with our business, John would love standing on the balcony of our hotel overlooking the old city and just marveling of the religious and political history that took place in this remarkable city of Jerusalem. And in 2012, when um, Joe Lieberman told McCain, I'm not running for office anymore. Um, McCain said, good, because now you can go out to the private sector, make a lot of money, you can come back, and you can buy a permanent residence in Jerusalem. And you can invite me over all the time. And we can stand here and look at Jerusalem many, many times together. And so Joe Lieberman said an interesting thing. Now, this is a very interesting thing coming out of the mouth of, of, of a Jew. He said, I regret that I was unable to buy the apartment before John died, he said, but I am convinced that McCain, John McCain, my friend, is now in a more perfect Jerusalem. Now, uh, he's an Orthodox Jew, so I am convinced that uh, Senator Lieberman does not believe that Jesus is Messiah. Nor do I believe that he, he, I don't think he believes the New Testament is the Word of God. But what he did yesterday at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., he spoke prophecy that anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, any follower of Jesus Christ, will live in a perfect Jerusalem on a perfect earth. One day. There's no doubt about it. Jerusalem is a city that fascinates billions of people. It fascinates Muslims, it fascinates Jews, it fascinates Christians, and because of spectacular prophecies like this one in Zechariah, it fascinates every person who loves the Word of God and is anticipating the return of Christ to rescue the suffering people of God. Now, as we saw yesterday, when Jesus returns, and rescues Israel from annihilation, that is the event that causes Israel to finally believe in in its Messiah. Zechariah 12, And I will pour out on the house of David, Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, God speaking, the one they have pierced, crucified, And they will mourn for Him. So it's when God saves Israel from annihilation in the end of times, they will look upon God and they will realize that when Jesus Christ was crucified, Israel will say, we crucified God. And Israel, all the Jewish nation, will turn to Christ and be saved, just as the book of Romans chapter 11 says, it will. This is why I love the book of Zechariah. It talks about big things happening in the future. And I, and that's why I preached it. It's why I came back to it today. It's, and, it's, and it's why I want to make this statement. When the return of Christ is preached correctly you see Him as a big Christ. And when you believe in a big Christ, you will live in a big way. Let me illustrate that. I want to introduce you, if you haven't met these folks here, Sean and Leslie Vesey. You probably have seen them running around here on and off for the past three or four years. They're in and out, um, sometimes here, sometimes in Africa. But they're getting on a plane tomorrow for Uganda. This is their third trip uh, to Africa, working with orphans. Um, And uh, they were here last week for the first My first dive into Zechariah 12, 14 and the return of Christ. And so at the end of the service, they came down. I had prayer with them. We did in the office this week. And Ronnie, of course, has been hanging with them for months and months and months in preparation for this third trip to Uganda. So before we prayed, she goes, wow. She goes, that was the perfect send-off sermon for us to go back to Africa. And so I sort of took that as well, you know, good I could sort of see what you would mean by that. You know, the return of Christ is is always it's always sort of a no-miss sermon, but through the week I began to wonder what did she really mean by that? So I I called her and said, "What do you really mean by that? Why did that encourage you?" Love her response. Now, remember Zechariah 14, Christ coming down, boom, boom, his feet standing on the Mount of Olives. This will help you understand her, this quote. I realized in that moment when Christ comes down and stands on the Mount of Olives and it splits, I realized in that moment that my feet were so small. I don't want to spoil this. She said that when I read that verse about Christ coming down, his feet standing on the Mount of Olives, she looked down at her feet in the service. That'll help you understand that. So Mount of Olives split, she looks down at her feet. I realized in that moment that my feet were so small when compared to his mountain-splitting feet. But that is exactly where I needed to be so that I would focus again on what he brings to me rather than what I bring to him. You know, when you look at a passage like that in Zechariah 14, it makes you appreciate another passage about feet. I'm going to read the Old Testament version of it rather than the one you're expecting in Romans. You're expecting Romans 10. I like the Isaiah one better. How be- Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, who say, Your God reigns. So this is what Sean and Leslie are taking to these orphans. These, these, these children have been orphaned by war in Sudan. If, just in case you have forgotten your, your African geography, They're working in Uganda receiving children from all the atrocities that are occurring north of them and the horrific, insane uh, government bombing of its own people in Sudan. So you got all these children being sent down to live in refugee camps in Uganda. And that's who Sean and among the children that they are, they're working with. So, so this is the message that Sean and Leslie's beautiful feet are taking to these terrorized children. There's a God who reigns. There's a God who's been pierced on a cross so that even if A bomb from the Sudanese government pierces your leg, pierces your body. If you will cling to Jesus, you will live again because He has lived again. You don't have much else to teach these children in Africa. You just can't tell them what you tell them in America. There's just not a lot of hope for them apart from big God going to come down Mount of Olives, wipe out the enemies of the Lord, take you home to live forever in the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Um, Now, I'm going to have to put a big parenthesis in this sermon. And I knew I was going to do this. And so I'm sort of, I've got to depart from the return of Christ a minute and tell you a little bit more about Sean in order to help you understand how God has prepared him to go take this message. And so I'm not going to make as much progress as i wanted to today i think this pleases the lord but I, i'm not it's it's hard for me because i'm i'm not as linear right now as i want to be but i have to tell this story for you to appreciate how god makes a servant of the lord ready to go because i bet some of you are wondering about your own pain it feels purposeless and I want to let you know, it, there's not a millisecond of your pain that is wasted. Sean, I'm to show you another picture of him because he's so pretty. They call him Papa Fish over there because he's always wearing this fish shirt. Um... John spent 36 years working for the Department of Defense. Uh, 20 years, his final 20 years, he worked in the Pentagon. Um, he was in the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001. When, of course, at 9.40 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77, piloted by four militant terrorists, flew that aircraft into uh, the fourth corridor of that structure. Sean worked in the third corridor of the Pentagon. And he said he literally saw the floor beneath him move. That morning when he got to work, he had met a new friend, Jonas Panic, at the coffee shop. Jonas died upon impact. Also that morning, he ran into uh, another friend, a longtime friend, a man, young man named Brian Jacks. Brian had only been married six months. He died that day. A total of 125 of Sean's co-workers died in the Pentagon on September 11th. So he, though escaping, really didn't escape and entered into a post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, survivor's guilt and entered into long-time counseling with a team that was assigned by the intelli- uh, to deal with the intelligence community of people who've suffered all sorts of intense um, torture treatments and none of it helped. So in, in April of 2012, Sean had decided to take his life and was headed down the steps of the Pentagon uh, and was going to get in his car and drive on the interstate and, into a, a pylon and take his life. And down the steps of the Pentagon, it had been raining that morning in April of 2012, he slipped on the steps and fell. And instead of falling backwards as you would, thinking I'm walking down the steps, he fell forward as in a kneeling position on his knees, as if you would be praying. All fours. And he looked up, and there was a Marine colonel. And the colonel helped him up, And Sean, just out of wounded heart, told him his story, planning to take my life. The Marine Colonel took him to the chaplain, and the chaplain told him with a beautiful, warm smile, Sean, today is not your day. God has work for you to do. Sean, today is not your day. God has work for you to do. Sean rededicated his life to Jesus Christ, retired from the Department of Defense, was attending a wake for a family member in Virginia, was telling people there that he had retired, was moving to South Carolina. Someone there said, if you're they told him so they was moving to a city called Spartanburg, said, You need to attend a church called Hope Point. He came to Hope Point. They began watching Hope Point online, began attending here, found their calling, and uh, through Hope Point in Africa. And, and all I can say is, Aren't you glad Sean didn't take his life? So I, I, I paused my second coming sermon because I thought I just needed to tell somebody, aren't you glad Sean didn't take his life? And I I cannot tell you how serious I am about the wrongness of taking your life. You end your future. You end Africa. For these children, Leslie says, his wife says, that when Sean stands in churches, and in children's camps, and tells these people, I know what it's like when terrorists make you afraid. And I know what it's like to cry out to Jesus when you feel like there's no hope. That He's about the only person who can persuade them in the power of the Spirit. And that many are coming to Christ because God broke him and rebuilt him. So that would have been a good enough story when they told me that this week. There was all part of this phone call. All I asked her was, <laughs> what did you mean by that was a good send-off message? And all that came out. That would have been good enough, but it just kept going. We were in uh, chapel, uh, chapel. We well, I wasn't in chapel. <laughs> we were in staff meeting this week. But Dan teaches the Bible so well instead feels like chapel service. We were in staff this week. Dan was leading a Bible study through Psalm 119 and there was a knock on the office door and and uh, one of our one of our moms, one of our youth moms and one of our youth sweet girl. So mom and daughter came by and said, "Like to see me." And I'll just avoid names just for to keep it all Godward. But they know who they are. It said, "We have a gift for you, pastor. Know that you're You've had migraines lately, and still working on that, and just have a gift, and uh, wrote a sweet letter, and then said, I have a piece of art, artwork for you, just, and, um, and the, the artwork says, not today, Satan, not today. So, again, I just don't know where each of you are in this, you know, in your journey. But when I preached the depression message a few weeks ago, somebody asked me pointedly, What is the answer? What is the answer to not taking your life on days when you feel like you want to take your life? And I just said, You just don't do it that day. You just say to Satan, not today. And that's how you get through the horrible the most horrible days, not today. And then the next day you're glad you didn't. And everybody that I've ever counseled that attempted to take their life, they're so glad it didn't work. So you just not today, Satan. Not today. And so I'm so glad Sean and Leslie are boarding a plane for Uganda because it wasn't it wasn't his. Day and God stopped him, and then and then Sean built, and then Sean built on that. Not today, Satan. I'm not giving in to you today. I'm not ruining God's purposes. I'm not ruining God's future for my life. Not today. Not today. So anyway, so I I I've been teaching on the return of Christ because I, I wanted I want to make this this point clear that when it's done right you end up as we saw last week with Shawn and Leslie seeing Christ on the Mount of Olives you end up seeing a very big Christ and when you see a big Christ you want to do big things for him that's why that's why it's good to teach on the return of Christ and that's why you know you say when it's done right Now, last week I started reading to you a quote from John Piper of he pulling for us that we should be be doing this more and more. And it was a four-powerpoint quote. And I read three, and I don't know why. I had a brain freeze. I didn't read the fourth slide. Just didn't. So I want to read the fourth slide now to tell you why we should preach on the return of Christ. Let's see here. And here it comes. In regard to teaching on the second coming of Christ, my exhortation, go for it. If anything is clear from the prophets, it it is that their prophecies were meant to empower. This is what you do when you preach. Their prophecies were meant to empower present God-centered righteousness. Righteousness and sacrifice for the relief of all suffering, especially eternal suffering. You see what he's getting at there? The more you think about the return of Christ, you think like Leslie and Sean, I want to go do big things for Him, and I want to be ready for Him. So that's a Piper quote. Now we'll, we'll gear it down a little bit for a Smith quote. It's a Smith quote. The more we anticipate Christ's return, the more we will cleanse our hearts of sin, and the more we will sacrifice for the spreading of global hope so that we will be unashamed of our life and witness when He appears. Okay, Rob, my brother, his name, It's 10.53. I normally end right at 11. I've got seven minutes. Seven minutes. Amen, Rob? I heard it. Did y'all hear that? I just want to say one thing. Because there is a purpose to the return of Christ. I'm just going to read this verse. If if any of you I've ever taught on preaching, this is the wrong thing to do. I'm going to another passage that's like a major passage, and I should have picked one or the other. But I'm just, but I'm not preaching. I just want I want to whet your appetite. You read the rest of it today. It's 2 Peter 3. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is how we get a new earth. Everything's going to get burned up. Then the new earth comes. Peter describes what Revelation doesn't. That's how the old earth goes away. This is how the new earth, this is what happens. Just everything is burned up. New earth comes. Since everything, then since, like there's a purpose for preaching on the return of Christ. Since everything will be destroyed in this way and new things coming. What kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this new earth, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means Salvation. just want to say a couple comments on that, then we're going. We will know together that I have failed in these two weeks on preaching the return of Christ if it results in our church going across town going to the top of our new building and sitting in lawn chairs in our pajamas waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. I have failed, if that's what we do. I have succeeded if we go to Uganda and take care of orphans and tell them about Jesus and die in the process and sell a few of our possessions and give it to the building of Christian hospitals and the support of missionaries that we might reach Muslims, inner city, Manhattan, and those who've never heard printing Bibles in new languages, then we'll know that we will be unashamed of our life and of our witness when Christ comes. Jonathan Edwards said, I want to live my life in such a way that I would never do anything within an hour of the trumpet blowing and Christ returning that I would be ashamed of. I resolve, that's what he said, I resolve to do nothing that I would be ashamed of within an hour an hour of the Lord's returning. I think there is little preaching on the return of Christ because we have so much money. We are so comfortable. We don't really care whether or not he returns and that means we're all messed up but when you begin to feel the suffering of the world what you want to do is to do something to relieve that suffering by using all of these resources that we've been so generously given to live in such a way that when He does return, we will have been unashamed at the way that we lived our life and our witness when He parts the eastern sky. No matter what we lose and what we give, This is what we gain when he returns, a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray.